That's the sacrifice of which we talk about this morning. One that God has specified as acceptable to Him, which therefore will please Him. And that's key, isn't it, to our sacrifices. It has to be one that He has specified as appropriate and one that will please Him. In our passage, as we look at this happening, Jesus is close to giving Himself on the cross. He's very near to giving His life. He's very near to suffering the persecutions and the beatings and all of the things that came along with that. And as this account unfolds, we are introduced to a woman. We're introduced to a woman who demonstrates her great love and her great dedication to the Lord by giving Him a very costly sacrifice. Now her sacrifice of love was condemned by some, but commended by Jesus. He told those around him that she did all that she could do. And that's what he expected from her. And that her sacrifice would be remembered continually. Anytime the gospel was preached, and I believe maybe that is even happening today. Now the title of this sermon is, and I borrowed it from the words of Christ, she did what she could. She did what she could. And as we consider this text, and as we look at her actions this morning, let's each of us ask, have I done what I could? And as we do that, I want us to examine three areas in which this lady did all that she could. In the first area we are going to notice is she did all she could in the area of sacrifice. Notice the gift found in verse number 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Now the ointment is described as being very valuable. The ointment on which she poured this onto Christ's head was valued, the King James says, at 300 pence. That's a modern day amount of money. It's 300 denarii would have been the correct uh, description. Now Matthew, Mark, and John all specified that the, the, the ointment was precious or pure nard very costly. So they want to make a distinction here, right? Because there were several grades of that type of ointment. This ointment was imported from India and its value was based on its level of purity, right? That affected the cost of it. Now Pliny mentioned, Pliny mentioned that there existed something called a pseudonar. This was something that was obviously inferior to the genuine substance. And so here the writers are making a point. And they want to make clear that Mary was using a very expensive gift, not an inexpensive one, not one that was a pseudo-ointment, not one that was kind of like the original, but one that was extremely expensive. In fact, this ointment was worth 300 denarii. More than a year's wage because one denarius was the typical wage of the day. 
for that day. Now, for us to better understand the sacrifice of this gift of which Mary gave to Jesus, our minimum wage in our country is $7.25 an hour. If we base that on a 40-hour week, and most of us work more than that, but if we base it on simply a 40-hour week at the minimum wage, this gift would be like us offering more than $15,000. And that's what Mary did. It was a very expensive gift. Now that information is very important. It's important because of the complaint the disciples are about to make in our passage. But it also reveals something to us. It reveals the depth of love and honor that Mary has toward Jesus as she is anointing Him with something that is a financial sacrifice to her. Because those are also the sacrifices that we must make. Now the box in which the ointment was stored is an alabaster box. Now that was a type of marble and it was often used uh, by the ancients to store ointment of this kind. Now to Mark's statement that Mary poured it over his head, John added something else. John 12 verse 3, he said that she poured it also on his feet and wiped them with her hair. We'll notice something about that just in a few moments. But her sacrifice was a costly one. Now Mark explained that some were grieved because of her gift of the sacrifice. Let's notice that. He wrote in verse 4, Some had indignation among themselves, complaining. Mary's action was wasteful, and the money from the sale could have been used to help the poor. Now, on the surface, maybe that is an honorable statement. But really, what they're saying is, this could have been put to better use. But we learned some other things. John specified to us, in John 12, verse 4, that Judas Iscariot one of his disciples, who should betray him, was the one most vocal about the use of this ointment. So was he really concerned with the poor? No, he, had, he was already known, or at the time of this writing, was known because it was written 60 years, John, after Christ gave himself or so. He was known at the time John made that statement that he was a thief. He was the treasurer. He was stealing from the bag that held the money. So he wanted the, money, the, the ointment to be sold, to be placed in the treasury, so he could steal it. But to expend something in waste, though, means to use it carelessly and thoughtlessly, doesn't it? So was she being wasteful by using this ointment when it could have obviously been sold for more than a year's wage? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that Mary did anything that was thoughtless or careless in this action. When we consider our financial sacrifices, I think we need to look at it just the same way that Mary did. We're to be very thoughtful and very careful, aren't we, when we think of our financial sacrifice. We ought to be very aware of the mindset that we have when we offer a sacrifice to God. Paul commanded this, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. 
He said, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. To lay in store means to calculate what I want to set aside for a particular purpose. When I want to add to a retirement fund, I have to calculate what I can put in that fund. If I want to start a savings account for a vacation, I have to calculate what I can put in that fund so as to still be able to meet my other obligations. So we're thinking of a mindset. Now, in addition to that, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 6, he said, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We see those intents in the actions of Mary, don't we? And when we look at the idea of financial sacrifice, it's, it boils down to not what we give, but what we have left over, right? When the, uh, the widow gave her mites, Jesus said she gave more than everyone. And there were some very wealthy people who were putting their collection into the treasury box in the temple. So how was it that she gave more? She sacrificed more, right? We don't have a particular number under New Testament Christianity that we give, but we have to give cheerfully. We have to give willingly. We have to give purposefully. And we have to give sacrificially. Now we have to understand, does God expect me to give 90% of my wages, well, that's ridiculous. We can't live in this world if we do that, right? You know, many of us have house payments. Some of us have car payments. We have land taxes. We have this tax, that tax. We have children in college. We have children that we're rearing at home that like to eat every day, be clothed every day, wear shoes every day, right? have a bed to sleep in every day, lights to turn on every day, water to use, right? And so if we're going to meet those obligations, we have to purposely consider what I want to set aside as a sacrifice. No one expects, and certainly God does not expect us to give everything that we have. I mentioned this one time, a friend of mine who was in the school of preaching he had gotten his monthly support from the congregations who were sending him there, and he had how many ever dollars that he had, several hundred for that month, and the, the plate came along, and he took that money out, and he put the whole wad right into the collection and sent it on down. He wanted to give sacrificially. God wants us to give sacrificially, but He doesn't want us to give stupidly, right? That's not what He's after. He doesn't want us to be uh, irresponsible in our giving. So how, is, how are you going to pay the rent? How are you going to pay the light bill? How are you going to buy groceries? What are you going to do when you have given all of your money? So uh, the elders had to call that young man in, have a talk with him, and return the vast majority of that money back to him. Because he was already living sacrificially, but that didn't... Uh, excuse him from giving in some way. But we see these intents in the heart of Mary. She purposed to sacrifice a, uh, a financial gift for Christ, and she did it with a heart of happiness. 
because you had the opportunity to do it. Now, all of us, we need to look into ourselves, right? We need to consider when I give sacrificially, am I doing it purposefully? Am I doing it with the right frame of mind? Do I want to do it or am I, am I doing it because I feel like I have to do it? Now, the writer of Hebrews reminded his readers, Hebrews 13 beginning with verse 15, he said, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in His name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So we see that we offer sacrifices that are not financial in nature. Right? We come and we sing praises to God. The writer of Hebrews says that's a sacrifice, the fruit of our lips. We pray to God. That's a sacrifice of the fruit of our lips. We preach the Word. That's one of the five acts of worship that we find in the New Testament. And that's a sacrifice of the fruit of our lips. See, we sing, we pray, we preach. God expects all of that. Am I doing it purposefully? See, a sacrifice has to be purposeful whether it's financial or not. Am I purposefully singing? Am I understanding the words of which I sing? Am I understanding the prayer that's being prayed? Am I saying a prayer that is according to what God wants me to pray? Am I doing it in the proper way? Is my preaching the proper way? Whoever is filling the pulpit, he must do it in such a way that is pleasing to God. Not going beyond that which is written, Paul told the Corinthians in his second letter. Now, uh, the lady of Mark 16 She did all that she could do by way of sacrifice. Now our second point is this. She did all that she could do in the area of service. Jesus expressed the depth of her service to Him. He simply said she had done everything within her power. You can't serve more than that, can you? Now the expression, what she could, is a reference to all that she possessed. Now that may have been the most precious possession, physical possession, that she had. Now there were many things that Mary could not do for the Lord, right? She couldn't do a lot of things, but she could anoint His head. She could give Him all that she had in service to Him. Now, her service was absolute. And that's what Jesus intended when He said she did what she could. Her service was absolute. She had rendered that to Him and had submitted to Him. And God expects that. God expects all the people of the world, whether they believe in Him or not, whether they acknowledge Him or not, He expects all people of the world to surrender to Him. Service completely. Now, A vast majority of the world are not going to do that. But some will. And when presented with that opportunity, Mary took the opportunity of service. And she took advantage of a once in a lifetime opportunity. Can you imagine the wonderfulness of what she did? Now I don't know anyone who would ignore the opportunity. Those who claim to be believers in Christ. I don't know anybody that would ignore the opportunity to invite Him into their homes 
to be able to render to Him some kind of a sacrifice, some kind of a service to Him. I don't know anyone who claims Christianity that would avoid the opportunity to do that. But you know what I notice in the world? That we don't have buildings large enough for everyone who claims to be a Christian to congregate to offer service to Jesus. Someone says, well, that doesn't even make sense. Christ hasn't been walked, hasn't walked on the earth for, for 2,000 years. I want us to notice what He said. Let's notice Matthew 25 beginning with verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or, or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, or truly I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. We are expected, and God expects us to do the same kind of service that Jesus expressed in Mary. It's clear, isn't it? If the world viewed this in the way that God expects us to view it, we would be fulfilling this very type of service. Now, to serve is a trademark of Christianity, isn't it? Or at least it ought to be. That is one of the reasons that the missionary societies of the of the past were wholly unscriptural. It's why the church doesn't create a side organization called the, the, the Church of Christ Relief Organization and, and we go into the world and we, we take care of those who have uh, endured floods and hurricanes and tsunamis because that organization gets the glory. What, who is supposed to get the glory? God. God is to get the glory. The Christian is tasked with fulfilling those works. Congregations of the Lord's people are tasked with fulfilling those works. And when we do that, God gets the glory. Not some organization. There are good organizations, and there can be organizations in the world, secular in nature, civil in nature, that can contribute and help in some way. But the church itself, when we help, we do it as a congregation of the Lord's people or we do it as a Christian. And God gets the glory. Paul commanded this, Galatians 6 verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. See, we can help all people. We can help people who aren't Christians because we have the commandment. When we have an opportunity... Help those who are in need, especially if they are of the household of faith or if they are Christians. 
Therefore, when we serve others, actually, who are we serving? We're serving God. We're serving Christ. Jesus' closest friends had an opportunity to serve Him in the garden, didn't they? Mark 14, 32 through 42. He went a little further into the garden. He took those three with Him, James and John and Peter. We see it uh, later on in the, uh, below the text we're in right now, Mark 14. And He said, sit and watch with me, wait with me as He prayed to God because it was close at hand that, that He would be arrested in the garden. And it says He went a stone's throw away and He knelt down and He began to pray. And He got up and, and He went back and He found His closest friends who had an opportunity to serve had fallen asleep. Now, not to be too harsh on them, when we look at the context in the Word study, it's they cried themselves to sleep. But yet they still were not watching. They were not serving. They had a, a grand opportunity. So he goes back. He, he wakes them up. He said, can you not stay awake? He goes back and he prays. Basically the same prayer. He comes back again and finds them asleep again. And so he pleads with them, can you not stay awake and watch with me? Can you not give me the moral support? And he goes back and he prays the third time a very similar prayer. And we know what the prayer was. If, if anything else can take the place of this cup. If, if, if this cup can pass from me, let's do that. But those words that he said, not my will, but thine be done. See, that was an opportunity to serve. And they missed it. They missed that opportunity. Don't you know that haunted them? That haunted them years later as they would reflect back on those opportunities. Listen again to Jesus' words as he defended Mary against the thief Judas, Mark 14, verse 6. Let her alone. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. You know, like that lady, Jesus expects us to serve by doing good works for Him. And when we do good works in this life, it's like doing a good work for Him. However, it is important to understand we are not able to do good works in this life unless, like Mary, and this is our third point, we surrender to Him. She did all that she could do when it came to surrendering to Jesus. Jesus explained why Mary's use of the ointment was a good work. It was a priority. It was a priority. The problem did not rest in it being wrong to help the poor. The reason that she did a good work is because it was necessary at that time. There are some good works in this life that if we're going to do them must be done now, right? They have to be done now, at this moment, at this very moment in time, at the very present. We can't do it tomorrow or next week. We have to make a decision to do it now and it was a priority, right? There would never be a time, Jesus said, when you won't have the opportunity to help the poor. They're always going to be with you. That doesn't denigrate the fact that they need to be helped, but what it was more important, what was the priority to do the good work presented at that time. Mary's complete surrender as a priority can be seen in that service. I want us to notice that John is very careful to note that not only did she anoint Jesus' head. 
she anointed his feet and wiped them with her hair. Now when he was in the house of Simon the Pharisee, uh, Luke 7 beginning with verse 36, Jesus chastised his host. Chastised him in several areas. He said, first of all, you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. And you didn't anoint my head with oil. Now precious and costly oil such as this was usually used to anoint the head. Yet Mary applied this perfume to Jesus' feet. Now why is that significant? Why is that significant? Well, you used water to wash the feet, right? The feet were dirty because they wore sandals. And when they went into a house, that was just common courtesy to allow the person a a pan of water so they could wash their feet and they could be more comfortable, right? It would be just like offering someone a, a cold drink if they came into our homes or to hang up their coat for them or allow them to wash their hands and freshen up just a little bit. That's what it is. Now we have to understand this happened while they were eating, right? And of course they didn't sit at a table like we do. They, they leaned on a couch and their head was toward the food. Their feet were away. And Mary brought this oil. She knelt down, had to have knelt down. And she anointed the Lord's head. And then she began to pour it on His feet and she wiped His feet with her hair. She was submitting to Him. She was understanding His superiority in her low position. You know, when we read through the Bible and we understand that God used anointing in different situations, right? You anointed the king. You anointed the prophet. You anointed the priest and you anointed the dead. Jesus was all for those. He's our king, he's our prophet, he's our priest, and he died for us. Now whether or not she recognized those in the sense that we do today, I don't know. But she understood he was very special. And she understood that she needed to surrender to him because it was a priority in her life. She acknowledged her submission. And because of that, Jesus acknowledged the pleasure that she had in his priority. He said this, Matthew 14 beginning with verse 8. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus expects us to surrender to him in obedience, kneeling before Him as our King, our Prophet, our Priest, and as the One who died for us. Paul warned this, Philippians 2, beginning with verse number 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For many, it's going to be too late when they kneel in subjection to Jesus when their tongue confesses who He is. She hath done what she could. Can Jesus say that about us? I'm the only one other than God who can answer that for myself. And I'm the only one that can make sure that God will answer in the affirmative. Have I done all that I can. Before we can sacrifice, before we can serve, we must first surrender 
to God. We do that in the New Testament age, the Christian age, through the plan of salvation that God delivered through His Son, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. He delivered a message of faith in Him that He is who He said He was, John 8, verse 24. He delivered a message of repentance, that same one that was preached on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 38. Those standing in the audience looked up and verse 37 said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? After that sermon was preached about how they had murdered the very Son of God, and Peter answered and said unto them, Repent, change your life, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Jesus sent a message in His plan of salvation of confession that He is the Son of God, and we're to live that confession, Matthew 10, 22. We are to, or excuse me, Matthew 10, 32. And we are to confess that prior to baptism, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 37. And then, of course, he brought the message of baptism. Now, baptism is very important. It's not more important, but it is just as important as faith, repentance, and confession. It's just as important as faithful living. Baptism washes our sins away, Acts 22, verse 16. It saves us, 1 Peter 3, 21, as the final step in the plan of salvation. And then, of course, he brought the message of faithfulness, Acts 10, verse 22, or Matthew 10, verse 22. If you've never obeyed the gospel this day, if you haven't done it according to what the Bible says, don't take my word for it. Read the Bible, compare what you've heard, take Jesus' word for it. If you haven't done that, do that today. If you have, you become unfaithful for whatever reason. If you need to repent publicly, do that publicly. If it's a sin that that is known, repent publicly. We'll pray with you and for you. If it's a private sin, ask God to forgive you and He will. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing. Try me, oh Savior. Know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse.